Well, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And we're here today uh, in Mankato at the, at the Nutrient Management Conference in 2020 here. And uh, getting a chance to visit with a couple of folks about nutrient management topics today. Yeah, this has been an ongoing series. Uh, boy, I think uh, been at least a decade. I'm going to guess. I know uh, this originally was a brainchild of George Ream, who preceded Dan Kaiser. I think uh, this is one of the things that George came up with. Uh, uh, either right as he was ending his career or soon after he worked for the Minnesota Ag Water Resources Center for a while. But uh, the the idea of having this comprehensive conference that was uh, geared towards farmers and, and ag professionals that strictly dealt with nutrient management issues, a little different format than some of our professional offerings, uh, for instance, our crop pest management short course or our farmer offerings, kind of comes in in the middle. It's uh, fairly technical. Uh, technical enough that an ag professional is going to get something out of it, but uh, there's certainly uh, the farmers who feel like uh, they're kind of at that level for nutrient management, they get a lot out of it too. But uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's been a pretty successful conference. It's nice to kind of have a, a focus, like you said, Brad, where we're not uh, we're not hitting pest management topics and other agronomic topics are really kind of focused in on, on nutrient management and really specifically uh kind of steering away from nitrogen for the most part at this conference it's it's really focused more on pk it's it's all nutrients i think uh the context is is sort of there's the the, of course the water quality issues in minnesota and really for the upper midwest are are both nitrogen and phosphorus related but then of course acknowledging uh, that there's a lot of fertilizer research, uh, obviously, with uh, potassium and sulfur and then a little bit uh, with micronutrients. So tries to encompass all of it. You know, one of the messages we've tried to send over the years from the university is that managing in the best interest of the environment is not exclusive to managing in the best interest for your own bottom line. And so really it's not that difficult at a conference like this to really cover both ends of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, so being here at the Nutrient Management Conference, uh, we got the opportunity to actually uh, sit down with someone here for a discussion uh, that hails from the Red River Valley. And so it's, uh, you know, pretty infrequent for me to cross paths with folks from the valley. But uh, I know, Brad, your next uh, series of meetings here, you're going to be up north uh, doing Nitrogen Smart. Yeah, we got Lindsay Pease with us, and actually Lindsay's going to help teach it. So I, I hope you've yep. you've been dusting up on the curriculum, or have we Absolutely. still all right? Well, we should be good to go then. So, yeah, we have Lindsay Pease, who's uh, currently located at our Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. So welcome, Lindsay. Yeah, thank you. And for those of you that may not be familiar with Minnesota geography, it's important to note that Crookston is north of Fargo. So I am quite far from home today, um, in Mankato, but but happy to be here. Now this is a great conference, and and excited to have a chance to talk with you guys today. Yeah, the length of Minnesota kind of sneaks up on people. You know, where I'm located, I'm I'm within 20 miles of home here in Mankato. But uh, I know that at one point I professionally went to both Crookston and Kansas City uh, in the same week, so recorded my mileage. And uh, Crookston and Kansas City are about the same distance from my house. And so a little uh, perspective. Yeah, there. we got yeah. a little perspective. That's right. So, Lindsay, uh, you're a relatively recent uh, hire for the University of Minnesota Extension. Um, 
you want to fill us in a little bit like uh, on your background and maybe uh, when you came to Extension? Yeah, so I am starting my second winter here in Minnesota, but I started at the U about 18 months ago. Before that, I spent most of my life in Ohio, um, and I grew up in Ohio's Western Lake Erie Basin, which is another uh, flat glaciated agricultural watershed uh, with a phosphorus issue. So there's a lot of really um, interesting parallels between Western Lake Erie Basin and the Red River Valley where I'm currently at. Uh, but how I ended up in sort of agriculture and, and extension, I, I'll say up front, um, and some people don't like to admit that they didn't grow up on a farm, but I will admit I did not grow up on a farm. And um, I came to uh, Ohio State as an ag engineering major, wanting to uh, be an environmental lawyer, um, which is... Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Good choice of career change, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what ended up happening is um, I was looking for a summer job, and the drainage extension engineer at Ohio State, Dr. Larry Brown, he was looking for some summer helpers, and I was looking for a job. And so I really got a chance to travel around the state of Ohio, get out of the city, um, and really see what, you know, the landscape was like, you know, in between the the, the urban centers, uh, and really found there was a lot of agriculture out there, and really fell in love with, with working with, on ag, working on farm, doing that kind of work, being outside, and you know, liked it so much. I uh, got my master's degree at Ohio State and then went on for my PhD, where I studied tile drainage research with actually one of the people who invented the laser level for the drain plow. So, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned phosphorus, phosphorus issues. Now I'm picturing the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, you know, pretty much really pretty reduced tillage, pretty high adoption of no-till. Is that the case? That's that's actually exactly right. So, so the Western Lake Erie Basin went through this transition maybe back in kind of the 70s and 80s time frame where um, there's a big focus on reducing sediment, um, increasing adoption of no-till. Um, so we do have quite a few producers that, that have gone into maybe more of a rotational tillage strategy. Some are definitely doing straight no-till, others doing you know, no-till, no-tilling soybeans, and if they grow wheat in the rotation, no-tilling that, but then tilling before corn. So it's kind of a the no rotational no-till seems to be really common in that region. So the landscape looks similar to the valley, but of yeah. course the uh, climatic conditions are radically different. And uh, the valley's a, an interesting place to be working in uh, involving nutrient management, water quality, drainage, um, primarily because the crop rotation has changed so drastically over the last 20 years. We don't have a, we don't have a long history at all of corn production, uh, but even soybeans, um, you know, it really wasn't until genetic improvements started pushing those group zero beans that uh, the soybeans were uh, a significant crop up there. So the, the corn soybean rotation really just is not, uh, we don't have a lot of experience with that and, and uh, in the valley. And, and so um, now I think that's, that, that, that's got to be a little bit challenging for you, not really having um, this long history of, of uh, research products to go back on. I mean, we're kind of dealing mm -hmm. with a blank slate. Yeah, you know, it's, it's exciting and kind of daunting at the same time. You know, there's, there's 
so much interesting work to be done up in the Red River Valley, and and that's one of the things that really drew me to the position in the first place, and and gets me excited, you know, about working up there. Is we are in this phase of transition, um, you know, and guys are also experimenting a lot more. I mean, we're seeing cover crops in Northwest Minnesota, which is I think something that people never thought they'd see, never thought they'd see reduced tillage. So in addition to, you know, yeah, getting to experiment with some shorter season corn, some different rotations. Um, um, yeah, there's there's just really no no limit to the research questions that we have, and and I think that's why they wanted to put my position uh, there. They had you know a choice; they could put my position anywhere in the state, and they really fought to have it in Northwest Minnesota because that's where there's a real need for somebody. So when we look at water and, and drainage off the landscape in Minnesota, it's pretty unique. The valley uh, drains, you know, pretty much the opposite direction of the rest of the state. Uh, are there issues around that with uh, water flowing north into into Canada? Or yeah, absolutely. That that brings up um, another kind of unique watershed scale issue. Um, you know, that's a parallel again to Western Lake Erie Basin. Our, our water drains northward to a freshwater body. And in um, Northwest Minnesota, that goes north up to our Canadian friends in Lake Winnipeg, and they don't love having our phosphorus. Um, and, and so there is a difference, really, when you talk about nitrogen versus phosphorus in water. Um, phosphorus is the limiting nutrient for algal blooms in fresh water, whereas um, in saltwater systems like Gulf of Mexico, nitrogen's the limiting nutrient. So that's why you kind of hear some of these differences if we're talking about southern half of Minnesota and going to the Gulf of Mexico, nitrogen's the nutrient of concern. But really once you kind of flip and that water's going to a freshwater source, then phosphorus becomes your main nutrient of concern from an environmental standpoint. So, and I, I realize that you obviously don't work for the Pollution Control Agency, so, you know, as neither do we, but uh, when it comes to the valley with, with that water going into Canada, um, is are we under any kind of obligation with respect to what that water quality is when it crosses the border? I mean, are there any agreements between Canada and the U.S., or are we all just kind of trying to hold hands and work on things in, in good faith? Right now, uh, it's it's that we're trying to work together on it. I don't believe there is a formal agreement. I, I know that, that in Western Lake Erie Basin with some of those algal blooms, they did come up with a um, international pledge, both Canada and the U.S. pledge to reduce loading um, to Lake Erie, but... But I don't think at this time we have a, a binational agreement like that. So we're, we're kind of just yeah, banking on being good neighbors. So there, there is uh, kind of what we call an issue then with phosphorus moving north in, into Lake Winnipeg? You know, when they've, they've looked at the loading, uh, the U.S. is in the Red River Basin in particular is responsible for about 70% of the phosphorus load that's going into Lake Winnipeg. So, you know, even if it's not a ton of phosphorus, um, you know, 70% is a, a decent chunk. So uh, that's, it's something that I think should be on people's radar. I think it's, yeah. And so when we, we talk about phosphorus loading and phosphorus movement, uh, what's the primary contributor then to that watershed? In that watershed, we really do see a lot of um, surface flow and overland flow. I, I think there's probably a big contribution when we get, you know, the landscape, it's, it's all frozen. We've got snow everywhere um, up until April, and then it all thaws and floods at the same time. I mean, that flood water can really carry a lot of sediment with it. So I think, I think there's got to be 
a lot of contribution just from sediment and water movement and all that surface water kind of coming together in one big pulse. Um, you know, and that's what we see really on a smaller scale and a field scale, you know, runoff events, surface runoff events are some of the highest contributors to nutrient loading, just phosphorus loading really across the board, if, whether you're talking about one field or a watershed in this case. So typically we don't think about phosphorus as leaching because it absorbs the soil and and that's especially so when we get into the valley because of high pH soils and the tendency to be tied up as calcium phosphate. Mm -hmm. Do you do we have a feel for uh, and you've mentioned drainage and we know that you're going to be working a lot with drainage related research. Um, do we really have a feel for whether that problem also exists with water coming through drain tile or is that potentially something that might mitigate the problem that by pulling the water out below the ground instead of running it off the surface which is traditionally the way the land is drained in the valley is that potentially a solution or as part of this research to try and figure that out yeah you know brad i think you've hit the nail on the head there that is part of the question that i would like to ask because you know, we can think of in a, in a landscape that's already, you know, really extensively drained, we do tend to think of tile drainage as a contributor. But in a landscape like Red River Basin, where we do have infiltration problems and we don't have a lot of the land drained, and you can, it can be one way of, of increasing infiltration into the soil profile and reducing surface runoff. Um, so in in this case, I wouldn't be surprised if we find that, that tile drainage can be a net benefit. And I know then coming at it from the nutrient management perspective, um, we've had a lot of difficulty with how to deal with the valley from the, the pH side makes phosphorus management very difficult, but then I'm also aware that our colleague Fabian Fernandez has been doing nitrogen research and really having issues with occasionally or frequently <laughs> not even finding fertilizer response to nitrogen in Crookston, which is uh, intriguing because I'm not sure how many farmers want to plant corn and then just not plan on putting any nitrogen on. But right. it, it, it does add a wrinkle to how we're going to manage these these nutrients. Yeah, you know, then that is so, it really is interesting to see that response. And, you know, I mentioned to a couple of the guys that, that farm um, as, as part of our kind of commercial operation at the Research and Outreach Center. And they weren't anywhere near as surprised as the rest of us were that the nitrate wasn't giving a corn response. Um, and, and partly that's, I think, because nutrients are often not our limiting factor in uh, Northwest Minnesota. I mean, you, you know, climate, weather, rain plays a huge role in, in what our yields are gonna look like. So uh, higher background fertility, but then climate being such a limiting factor with a short season and-, and Yeah, a short season and you're reliant on getting the rain at the right time. Um, you know, if you're getting it all like this year where we got it all in September and October, that's not gonna do your crops any good. Well, so what what uh, what day length maturity uh, hybrids are we looking at growing in Crookston? Eighty five. Yeah, I would say I would say eighty eighty five. That sounds about right. I mean, it's definitely short season. So yeah. short season. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's interesting though that to think about just how much cooler the the season's going to be, and you know something we haven't mentioned here. Is kind of typical rainfall gradient across uh, across Minnesota, but it seems like more recently the valley's been having bigger issues with uh, excessive moisture and more rainfall than than ever before. Even snowfall, uh, accumulating snowfall 
is quite well, higher. I think my understanding of the data on that is that it's been, yeah, there's there's been more frequent flooding, but I, I think the total annual precip has been not increasing as much as it has in the rest of the state. Um, I think a lot of that flooding is, A, is due to precip in the, the lower end of the valley, you know, getting down towards Ortonville, you know, that area, Big Stone. Um, but then there's also these flashy events, which has been a problem statewide. Yeah, and, and I think the other piece of it is we're getting the rain happening in, you know, more intense rainfall events. And you see that all throughout the state too. So, you know, a three inch rainfall event in September can really be pretty damaging to your, to your harvest operations. And we definitely saw that this fall. And, um, so we've been keeping weather records at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center for many, many years. And, um, and this was actually our wettest fall on record. 2019 was the wettest fall on record for the research center. Yeah, so so where are we at for total inches of annual precip in Crookston at this point? Mm, I don't actually know off the okay. top of my head what it came out to, but okay. I think annually, I think but I think annually you're right. I think it was maybe not that different on an annual basis yeah. but it was like the seasonal distribution was T- definitely timing yeah yeah timing and yeah. it all falling at the wrong time yeah, yeah. I, I know that that uh the uh at wasika jeff vetch and i've been having this conversation the final total that's going to reset the rolling 30-year average has not been determined but they think that the rolling 30-year average at wasika is going to go to 38 inches. That's insane. And, and yeah. in the 1970s, it was 28 inches. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're, ten, we're, we're 10 inches more of annual precept than we were 40 years ago. 38 inches. That's like Ohio. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that'll, that'll uh, be interesting to see how things develop there and whether we cycle drier again or if we continue on that trend because it's going to be tough to manage that much water during the growing season. I know... Uh, Rochester this year we had an annual precip record uh, it was over 50 inches for annually and we look at the historic norms I, I think I went back two cycles of normal period average annual precip and we almost got that during the growing season from May through October we were wow. just just short of 32 inches this year during the growing season and we really didn't have uh, many inundative sort of storms. It just was frequent precipitation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really been kind of challenging. So, so Lindsay, I alluded to the drainage uh, uh, plots that you're putting in or drainage research area. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what you've got going on up there? Yeah, so one of the projects I did, and I'm super excited about it, is uh, I took a 60-acre field that, that we've farmed for a very long time at the Research Center. It's we've owned since the railroads granted it to us. Uh, and I decided to put in uh, four drainage plots. So the four 15-acre plots, two of them we ran the laterals for. The other two we didn't. So it's kind of drained, undrained, drained, undrained. And what we're going to do is this first couple of years, just look at just the straight difference between drained versus undrained in the Red River Valley. And we're going to have our farm crew um, just farm that all as one big unit. So we won't be looking at putting treatments out there just yet, but we want to get that baseline, Brad, that you alluded to just looking. So what crop are you going to start with then? 
So this last year we did wheat. So next year um, it'll be soybeans. We've had kind of a wheat soybeans rotation out there for several years. So we've got a really good record of undrained what those yields were. So the so the easiest thing to do is then to go to soybeans. And then likely we'll do wheat again, so we'll get that full rotation. And then we're going to start experimenting with corn and, and sugar beets out there. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that that Albert Sims, who's our current director, he's mentioned that they've never been able to grow sugar beets profitably on that piece of ground. So we will certainly be looking at if the drainage helps with that. Interesting. So what what other uh, what other research projects you got going on right now? Yeah, right now we are looking at um, a couple different things. Um, one of them related to cover crops, uh, actually, along with the also mostly new soil health specialist, Anna Cates, um, we are looking at trying to get some cover crops established in sugar beet rotations, kind of before beets and after beets. So this summer, we're going to be starting to work with guys and hopefully this later this spring and fall, actually do some on-farm work, trying to experiment and see what's going to work in a sugar beet rotation. Um, the other trial we've got going on is a long-term nitrogen trial. Um, and that's going around across the state. I don't know if you guys have yep. talked about this. We haven't talked about it on the podcast, yeah. no, but I'm, I, I, I have my fingers in it a little bit. Yeah. yeah, right. That's going on with the kind of our whole nutrient management team. So that's pretty exciting. We've got a, got a represent, represented up in Crookston, too. And on those drainage plots in the short term, uh, in addition to just looking at yield, we're going to be looking at nutrient cycling. Um, and so we're going to see this again is with Anna and she's got a real interest in carbon and soil health. And so we're going to be looking at that soil health aspect of drainage and see if we lose lose any carbon and how that then filters into nitrogen availability and, and potentially other nutrients. What percent organic matter do you have up there? Fairly high. That field, I think, is like five, four or five percent organic okay. matter. Uh, yeah. Hey, just curious, are you uh, chatting with Ashuk and some of the plant pathology things that you could look at with yeah, sugar beets? Yeah, yeah. So, so we are definitely looking at some sugar beet things and, and sugar beet disease. Um, you know, don't really have anything on the books just yet between Ashuk and I, but we're very interested in, and he's also interested in that cover crop issue too. So as we kind of get that experiment going, he we may have some good synergy there between the. I'm looking forward to you, to you uh, developing a lot more expertise in sugar beets. I know uh, uh, teaching nitrogen smart last week, uh, Dan and I had somebody asking about nitrogen credit for beet tops. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 Traditionally, uh, traditionally, Al Sims was, was the sugar beet fertility expert for University of Minnesota. So I've got big shoes to fill there, but you know, but there's also a lot of other needs up in the valley too. So it's yeah, so it's it's going to be it's going to be exciting over the next couple of years. So uh, today sitting at the nutrient management conference, what are you going to be uh talking about this afternoon? Yeah, this afternoon I am going to be talking about our kind of efforts to update the Minnesota phosphorus index. So we spent a lot of time already talking about phosphorus, and one of the things um, that I noticed needed to be updated when I got here was that we really hadn't looked at how we assess phosphorus loss risk assessment since about 2006, and there has been a ton of changes um, just in technology and our ability to monitor um, losses since 2006, and also our farming's changed quite a bit too. So, So we're actually going to be working with Minnesota Department of Ag and Discovery Farms and in you know amongst uh, the researchers in at the university too you know looking at some of those drainage plots at Wasika and other places to really look at 
you know, how far we've come and where we may need to reevaluate our risk assessment. I think that's real valuable. I was around when the phosphorus index was first developed. I wasn't part of the, the team that developed it, but the problem at that time was a lot of us kind of scratched our head and said, well, that's, that's interesting. What are we going to do with this? But now we're at a situation where with the state nutrient reduction strategy and some of the focus being put on on uh, actual reductions in phosphorus and water uh, to the point where now we would start comparing changes in practices and potentially using that as a tool to evaluate and then plan some outcomes. Uh, I think now we're at a point where this is going to be useful for in practice out in the field. Yeah, that's that's my hope anyway, is that the, that can really serve as a baseline. I mean, it's, again, like everything we do, it's going to be site to site and not applicable everywhere, right? That's always the disclaimer we issue. But at the same time, it's going to help, what I hope is help people give some idea of, you know, what they can do um, and what changes they can make. And, and maybe... You know, and, and sometimes there just are no other changes you can make, and you just have a high-risk site. And, you know, what some of the other options so, beyond nutrient management. So the, the scale you're talking about, as far as this tool having applicability, is a, very much a farm scale, or is it more landscape size? Yeah, this will be this will be a, a farm scale. Um, field scale. Field scale. Field scale. Field scale. Yeah. Yes, yes, field scale. <laughs> but, yeah, you're going to be able to kind of put in uh, management inputs. Well, right now, it's you put in management inputs um, for your field for that year, and it kind of s- runs an algorithm and spits out a risk value. And so what we're kind of in the process of doing right now is is looking at, is that a reasonable risk value or not? And then from there, Adjusting make it adjustments. Or, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. what's interesting at this conference earlier today, a, a woman from the Pollution Control Agency did a presentation looking at some of the numbers, nitrogen and phosphorus in water and where they came from. And I know I, I noted that the uh, input from feedlots was really, really small. And having been around at the, you know, in the mid-90s when there was a lot of focus on feedlots, I, and I don't know what the numbers would have been back then, but I know, you know, we had some issues around the state with, with uh, from one site to the next, not necessarily broad uh, broadly across the industry but i think everyone that's old enough remembers that you know seeing feedlots that were eyesores that there was a lot of runoff and bad practices um a lot of those were corrected by using a model very similar to the phosphorus index by looking at if we change this or did this you know what will be the improvement and in that way they uh we're able to get the the runoff from those sites down to the point where it really is quite minimal now. So uh, this should be kind of interesting, uh, moving this uh, off of the uh, off of the farm site and and out into the field. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Anything else you guys want to chat about today? Oh, I don't know. I I'll be in Crookston here in a couple of weeks. Uh, um, it should be just in time for spring in Crookston, right? Welcome Canadians. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That is, yeah. we were up there one time, Brad, we were staying and uh, visiting with a farmer, Gary Wagner, uh, discussing some precision ag technology, and uh, 
the hotel we were staying at, uh, the big banner outside, Welcome Canadians. And it's been their spring break yeah, or something. They headed, headed south to the warm climate of Crookston <laughs> yep. from Winnipeg to get away from the cold weather. And, and, uh, it in looked like Alberta a snow globe outside wherever, the whole time. Yeah, it did. Yeah, <laughs> that was our joke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways. Uh, well, it's been nice sitting down with you, Lindsay, and uh, we look forward to hearing you talk this afternoon. And uh, thank everyone for listening today. Uh, That's uh, today's edition or installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast.